God uh, led my heart to the book of Job for this Easter. If you know anything about the book of Job, I think Job is where we are as a church right now. We hurt. We have people in this family who hurt. And while I don't want to wallow in our hurt or in self-pity, nor do I want to act as if it isn't here. And the book of Job is a gift to those who hurt. Because what this book does is it plummets the depths of the reality of suffering. And not as an academician or a philosopher trying to look at the world and explain suffering. But rather through a man, a man who is intensely devoted to God. Whose life has been thrown into agony. Who loses everything precious to him. And what the book of Job shows us is how we are to walk through our pain, who God is in our pain, and what God promises. And see, when I read this book, one of the things that you realize is this, is that for much of the book, Job is pretty confused and angry with God. And I think suffering can do that to even the best of us. But there are a few places in this book where out of these depths or these deep valleys, Job gives us some peaks. And there's some of the most beautiful and glorious peaks in all of scripture. And they're peaks that make sense of our valleys. And in time, they're peaks that will take us out of, the, out of our valley, valleys. And they're the, the profound promises of God that change how we view our hurt, change how we hurt, and show us what the God of the universe does with our hurt. And if you're wondering what this has to do with Easter, it has everything to do with Easter. Trust me, okay? Trust the text. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. This is Job 13. I'm going to begin at verse 20. Only grant me these two things, God. And what we're going to find is that these two things are really just one thing. Only grant me these two things, God, and then I will not hide from you. Withdraw your hand far from me. Stop frightening me with your tears. Then summon me and I will answer. Or let me speak and you reply to me. How many wrongs and sins have I committed? Show me my offense and my sin. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? And then down to chapter 14 verse 1. Mortals born of woman are a few days and full of trouble. They spring up like flowers and wither away. Like fleeting shadows, they do not endure. Do not fix your eye on them. Will you bring them before your judgment? And who can bring what is pure from the impure? No one. Person's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months, and you have set limits that he cannot exceed. 
So look away from him and let him alone till he is put in his time like a hired laborer. At least there's hope for a tree. If it is cut down, it will sprout again and its new roots will not fall, fail. Its roots may grow old in the ground and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put forth shoots like a plant. But a man dies and is laid low. He breathes his last and is no more. As the water of a lake dries up or a riverbed becomes parched and dry, so he lies down and does not rise. For the heavens are no more. People will not awake or be roused from their sleep. If only you would hide me in the grave and conceal me till your anger is past. If only you would set a time and then remember me. If a man dies, will they live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal to come. And you will call, and I will answer you, because you will long for the creature your hands have made. Surely then you will count my steps, but not keep track of my sin. My offenses will be sealed up in a bag, and you will cover over all my sin. This is God's word. You can be seated. If you're reading along with me, I think you got a little taste of this book of Job's anguish. I was thinking about this as I was reading through various parts of Job this week. That Job's worldview, his theology of God is so foreign to us. Because Job just assumes that his agony and his suffering, that God did that. God is responsible for that. You read this book and it's never, well, Satan did that or Satan caused it. No, it's God, you did this. And he even says things like, God, why are you even angry at me? And is there anything that I did wrong that caused you to do what you did? And see, where so many of us are today is we're just so tempted to let God off the hook by saying things like, you know, God isn't responsible for suffering, that God would never allow for bad things. But here's what we do when we go there. What we're basically saying then is that God couldn't stop it. God's too weak. And if God's too weak to stop it, then he's probably too weak to do anything about it. And this isn't Job. For Job, it's not that God is too weak. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But for Job, it's this. Why, God? God, do you love me? Or God, are you against me? Did I do something wrong? Am I your enemy? In fact, we see this in verse 24 of chapter 13. He, he says, why do you hide your face from me and consider me your enemy? And then in verse 23, he kind of says, you know, is it my sin? Is there something that I did wrong? And I'll tell you what Job is feeling here. He's feeling God's absence. In verse 24, he says, are you hiding from me? And then verse 20, he says, I'm hiding from you. 
And so what Job, in light of all this, wants more than anything else is found in verse 22. He says, summon me. God, bring me into your presence. Don't hide your face from me. See, what Job wants, it's not necessarily answers. It's, it's not a sermon. It's not even really an explanation. What Job wants is this. God, I just need to know that you're with me, that you're for me, that you're not against me, and that you're walking with me. David says the same things in the Psalms. In Psalm 42, where, where David is in such anguish that he says, my tears have been my food both day and night. David begins this psalm with his heart's desire in the midst of this agony as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. Where can I go and meet with God? God, I just need to know that you're with me. That's what Job's saying. God, I just need to know that you're here with me. That you're for me and not against me. And even if there's sin, let's deal with this. Let's put it on the table. I need you. I need to know that I'm your friend. And that you're there. Now the philosopher treats suffering altogether different than this. Because he looks at suffering from afar and he writes his books and pontificates on why people suffer. But the sufferer actually doesn't need that. More than anything else, the person in suffering needs presence. The presence of real people and real friends. And friends and real people who don't need to give answers or three steps on on how to deal with pain. It's, It's just sit with me and stand with me and be with me, and even more than the presence of people, at the core of our heart is Job's longing. I need God. I need his presence. God, I need to know that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that I need to fear no evil, for you're with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And this is what Job is crying out for. He needs assurance. But let me tell you this today. We don't need that assurance. Because we know we are not left wondering if God is with us or if God is for us. Because Christianity and only Christianity believes in a God who did so much more than provide wisdom or a manual or three steps or some philosophical explanation or a sermon. Instead, what God gave to us is himself. The word of God, the wisdom of God became flesh. And he came into our world and he came into our hurt and he came into our chaos and into our pain. And he experienced everything Job did multiplied many times over. He lost a dad. He lost friends. He went to the ER. He went to the leper colony. 
he went to his friends' funerals. He knew what it was like to be lonely, to be rejected, to be hated, to be misunderstood, to be a victim of injustice, to be betrayed by friends, to suffer. He was tortured. And so the God of the universe doesn't just give us three steps or a sermon. He gives us himself. And everything that Job's heart longed for, we have right now in Jesus Christ. The prophet said, you'll call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And while Jesus might not always give clear answers as to why all the suffering, this we know in light of Jesus, that our suffering is never because God doesn't care or God doesn't love us or else he never would have come to us. And I think this is what we know from Scripture and even from personal experience. The more we suffer and the more we seek him in our suffering, the more we're going to experience his presence in our suffering. Sufferers who seek God are the ones who most taste and experience God and that God is good. If you find yourself in pain today, or maybe even in agony, this is the first promise we get from the book of Job. God promises us his presence. So seek him. Draw near to him. The next promise and this is found in the next chapter, in chapter 14, verses 7 through 9. But uh, those verses are set up with verses 1 through 6. And <laughs> when you read verses 1 through 6, you just, uh, I mean, Job's saying things like, man's days are full of trouble. They spring up like flowers. They wither away. They're like fleeting shadows. They do not endure. Do not fix your eye on them. And uh, what Job is in these verses is he is face to face with his own mortality. And suffering does that. Suffering reminds us of life's brevity. That we're only a fleeting shadow. That like a flower, we, we, we spring up and we flower and then we wither away and then we are no more. I mean, who's thought about the brevity of life this week? Who hasn't thought about their own death? about their own funeral, about their own casket. See, I have no problem talking this way right now because the Bible has no problem talking this way. This isn't just Job. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 39. In verse 4, he says, Show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days, and let me know how fleeting my life is. 
You've made my days a mere hand breath. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath. Even those who seem secure. Surely everyone goes around like a mere phantom. In vain they rush about, heaping up wealth without knowing whose it will all finally be. But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. And see, what the Bible teaches us over and over again, that if all of our lives in this room right now could be added up, they are nothing more than a millisecond in light of eternity. And so why are we trying to make so much out of this mere breath? Why do we expect so much? Why do we demand so much? Why do we strive for so much? We're just a breath. And you know the people right now who are fidgeting? Who want out right now? That's why I look at a big church today, but I'm not scared about being a big church. Because some of you are fidgeting right now. And those are, those are the ones who are prosperous, who live for this world, who get this world, and are scared to lose this world. But Psalm 39 actually encourages some of us. Psalm 39 encourages the sufferer. Because what it tells us is even the worst life in this world is nothing more than a bad afternoon in light of eternity. And, 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 and Job says all this just to set up the second promise that we get from these verses. Uh, verses 7 through 9, Job provides a metaphor. And the metaphor that he has there is of a tree. And it's a tree that's cut down. And then Job shows us what happens when the tree is cut down. It sprouts again to new life, to better life. And see, what Job is talking about here is this principle of pruning. And here's what every gardener knows. That the way that you make a flower flower or a plant flower or a tree to bear fruit is you need to prune it. It needs to be cut. It needs to be scarred. And see, God has placed this principle or this truth in his creation that trees and plants and vines, when pruned, when cut, when scarred, that the life and the energy that's in the vine or in the root, it's transferred to the branches and to the fruit, and it makes the, the branches and the fruit that much more beautiful, that much more fruitful, that much more glorious. That's why later biblical writers will pick up on this metaphor and apply it to people. They say that when we're pruned and when we're cut and when we're scarred, when we suffer... And when we're connected to the vine or to the root, we become that much more fruitful and beautiful and glorious. Now, to me, this is amazing. 
because suffering for the rest of the world causes people to despair, to give up, fall apart. Suffering pushes them down. It destroys them. But for us, like the branches on a vine or a tree, if, if we remain in him and find our life and sustenance in God, suffering only makes us stronger and more beautiful and more glorious. In fact, the word for glory in the Hebrew is this word kavod. And kavod simply means weight or weighty. Kavod communicates a gravity, an immensity, and depth that arises from the quality and sheer magnificence of God's presence. Kavod speaks of great worth and importance and honor and majesty, of this infinite greatness and this unspeakable worth that comes from one being pure and genuine and authentic. And that's why it's said of the wicked that they're like chaff. They're lightweights. There's no substance. There's no weightiness. There's no genuineness to their life. There's no kavod. And see what the Bible says is what produces glory in a person's life. It's not health. It's not wealth. It's suffering. Act in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17. I mean, you see this throughout the Bible, especially in the New Testament. Whenever it talks about suffering, it's talking about glory. And when it talks about glory, it's talking about suffering because the two go together. And Paul says it so clearly in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and our momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. In fact, literally it reads, it's achieving for us an eternal weight of glory. And I love this in Hebrews 2. It says, but... But we see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, while now crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because he suffered. I think this is what we've been seeing before our very eyes this week, that this church family has been made a little bit more glorious because of our suffering. In fact, this is why historically the church is always at its best when it suffers and when the world tries to cut it and to scar it and to beat it down, the church only keeps rising up, looking that much more beautiful and glorious. My brother this week told me just a few days ago he was talking to uh, one of Doug Tagus' old basketball buddies. <laughs> and this is what he said to my brother. 
He said, when I look at him, I have nothing but sheer awe. I looked at Josh Stoey on Wednesday. I mean, here's a guy, and I'm going to take some liberty. Hardly a, even an ounce of, of, of public speaking ability. And yet as he stood at Derek's funeral and spoke, he was a man with weight, with glory, because he suffered. We've seen it in Charity and Doug and Linda, Hillary. You have emanated glory upon glory as you stay connected to the vine. Because see, this is what it all hinges upon. We can either be a bush in the wasteland and just kind of blow away when the storms come, or we can be a tree planted by the water and oak of righteousness on display for the glory of God. Amen. And it all hinges on will we abide? Will we place our life in him and let his life and energy rush to our scars and make us beautiful? So as we suffer, God not only promises his presence, he also promises us glory. And now finally, out of the ashes of Job's reality comes Easter. I mean, the greatest promise of God, the promise of the resurrection, coming out of the book of Job, of all places. And look at verses 13 through 17. Just wait, I need to turn there. Job says, if only you would hide me in the grave and conceal me till your anger is past. If only you would set me a time and then remember me. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my heart's service, I wait for my renewal to come. And you will call, and I will answer you, because you long for the creature your hands have made. Now here's what Job is saying in these verses. His situation is so intensely painful that he says to God, God, just put me in the grave. Hide me in the grave until your anger has passed. What? Until God's anger is passed? What's he talking about? See, somehow Job in all his suffering knows what his greatest problem is. His greatest problem is not his circumstances. His greatest problem is his own sin leading to his own death. That's why in verse 14 he says, God, I will appease you with my hard service. And if I work hard enough, maybe I'll get verses 16 and 17 where when you count my steps, you're not going to keep track of my sin. But instead, verse 17, my sin will be sealed in a bag and covered. And see, in Job's mind, only hard service 
and death can accomplish this. But it's out of all this, when he realizes what he needs to do and go through to pay for his sin, does he dare ask the question? After you put me in the grave, God, maybe you could set a time to remember me, which means to reattach me, put me all back together again. See, now we're stepping into Easter. And next, Job then has the audacity to ask the question of all questions. If a man dies, will he live again? And Job asks that question with hope. Because he says, I will wait for my renewal to come. Renewal there is the same word in verse 7, which means to sprout or to spring up. It's life, resurrection life. And see, not only does Job hope in his own resurrection, but he gives a profound reason as to why he has this hope. It's grounded in this. When I'm hidden in the grave and you set that time to remember me, you will call for me and I will answer you because you will long for the creature your hands have made. In fact, this word long here means intense, passionate, all-consuming desire. It means burning, burning love. Now just think about this for a moment. That when we love someone, we never want it to be past tense. I mean, just think about those you love who are no longer here. It could be a friend, it could be a parent, it could be a child, it could be a spouse. Now apply this to God. What does it mean if the God of the universe longs for us and loves us? This is what it means, that when God places his love on us, it can never be limited to past tense. And if you don't know this, you don't know God or the power of God. Because in Jeremiah 31, it says, God says to us, I've loved you. I've loved you with an everlasting love. And because God is everlasting and his love is everlasting, that makes us everlasting. And so hear what Job is saying. He's saying your intense, passionate, all-consuming love for me means that someday you would call for me even though I'm dead. And your call would resurrect me. And see, Job even flushes this out further a few chapters later in Job 19. And he says, now I want you to take these words and I want you to inscribe them in iron. For I know 
that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. More literal yet, he will stand upon my grave. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself, I will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. Oh, how my heart yearns for this. What a hope. And who would have thought he would have come to the book of Job for this hope? This is the hope of all hopes, the truth of all truths. And you know why we can be utterly confident? Because centuries after Job, Job's redeemer actually did come to this world. And Jesus stood at his friend Lazarus' grave. In fact, when you read John 11, you see that as he approached the grave, that he literally had a visceral reaction to Lazarus' death. In two times, in verses 33 and 38, it says that Jesus was deeply moved. And this word in Greek is used of a horse when it's snorting and it's doing this with its hoof because it's, it's, it's almost violently filled with rage. And Jesus is filled with rage because this is not how his world was intended to be. And then it says in verse 35 that Jesus wept. And sometimes I ask myself, well, why did Jesus weep if he knew what he was about to do to his friend? Well, he wept because here we see the heart of a God. Our God weeps. He weeps at death because we weep. And he weeps with us in our weeping. And see, what Jesus also knew that day, that if he raised his friend that day from the dead, it would probably cost him his life. Because he knew the religious leaders would kill him for this, that he would have to die. And so Jesus knew that the only way to get Lazarus out of the grave, that he'd have to go into the grave. And so what does Jesus do? He calls out of longing and intense, passionate love for his friend. And Lazarus answered. Do you know today how much God loves you? How he longs for you. And it's not just with words, but he stood in your place. He lived the life you were supposed to live. He died the death that you deserve to die. He took all of our offenses on himself. And he sealed them in a bag, and he covered over all of our sins. Jesus, Jesus paid the hard service. Jesus did the hard work. And what Jesus did is he went to the grave so that you and I someday would come out of the grave. And one day our Redeemer will stand on the earth, and he's going to stand on your grave, and he's going to stand on my grave, He's going to call, Rod, and I'm going to answer. And he's going to call for you. 
And see, Jesus says something, though, at Lazarus' funeral that's so important. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now, there's a lot of popular opinion today that believes that the promise of the resurrection is for everyone. And I say, don't drink that Kool-Aid. Jesus couldn't be more clear. He says the one who believes, he's the one who will live. Whoever lives by believing in me, he's the one who will never really die. And then he ends this by saying, do you believe this? Not just do you have the proposition in your brain, but do you trust me? Do you trust me with your life for this? And see, in Job's agony, this was his hope. He trusted God. Is this your hope today? Is it really? Life's just a breath. And see, if it isn't really your hope today, he's calling right now. And he's saying, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, come and I'll give you rest. The question is, will you answer? Will you trust him? Will you trust him with your life? In his presence and glory and resurrection is what he promises if you trust him. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed, for the perishable must clothe, it, clothe itself with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. And when the imperishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through Woo! Jesus Christ our Lord. We just thank you for all that you promise us. And just thank you for your presence. Your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, oh God. And God, I thank you that suffering doesn't break us, but it, it lifts us higher. It prunes us. It makes us more beautiful and glorious. Today, God, we just so thank you for the greatest hope and the greatest promise you ever gave us, the promise of the resurrection. And if there's any person here today, Lord, who doesn't have that hope, I pray right now in the name of Christ.
that they would hear your voice, that they would hear your call, and that they would answer. In Jesus' name.